Hey everyone, welcome back to another exciting episode of Property Soup. My name is John Staggs, property strategist for Access Wealth. Hey guys, Alan from Foundation Property. Um, it's going to be a pretty exciting episode today. Uh, we've got William Tong from Property Alliance, who's a commercial buyer's agent and property strategist. Uh, Will's been in the industry for 21 years. I don't know anyone more experienced in commercial property. He's worked for all the big names, CBRE, uh, Jones Lang LaSalle, um, you know, been involved in multi-million dollar acquisitions deals uh, for a lot of his clients and is now helping people graduate from, uh, you know, residential to commercial property. So if you feel like you're ready to put your black belt on and graduate and be, uh, you know, a black belt in property, uh, Will's your guy. So, um, yeah, really excited to, to have him on and stay tuned. Uh, if you keep listening, uh, Will might actually kind of take us through some secret deals that he's done as well. William Tong, thanks for uh, joining us, mate. Thanks for joining. Uh, thanks for being on Property Soup. It's first your first time with us podcasting. Yeah, it is. Uh, thanks for having me. So yeah. pretty excited. Uh, pleasure to have you, man. Yeah, yeah we've we're, we've done countless Zoom meetings together, <laughs> yeah. helping clients, but this is you know it's good to do this in person and you know, have you on the show, man. Yeah, I'd love to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Let's let's just get straight into it, man. Like, right. tell us. Uh, look, you're a commercial buyer's agent. Um, we, we actually know each other pretty well. Yes. Um, we've, we've worked on a lot of deals together, helped a lot of clients together actually. Yep. Tell the audience, you know, a bit about yourself. What's your background? How did you get to get into commercial property and how did you get into, you know, becoming a buyer's agent for yeah. commercial? Well, I guess the, the, the short version is I've been in the industry for over 22 years. started when I was 21 and so I'm showing my age at the moment. And my, my, my first real estate job was actually – selling uh, off-the-plan apartments in Sydney CBD. This is back in 2001, which is right, uh, you know, r right off the, 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 the Sydney Olympics. So the mm. property market was actually going for a bit of a boom at that stage. Mm. And as a young guy just straight out of uni, um, you know, I was doing two or three, um, you know, off-the-plan sales a, a month. So I was actually really, really happy. Mm. Um, so I did that for about a year and a half. And then I kind of got bored of residential because it's always the same, it's always the same. And... Um, I wanted something a bit more challenging and I wanted something that's a little bit more, I suppose, um, had a better career path. Mm. And so I got um, a bit of a tap on the shoulder from a recruiter um, in 2003 uh, to join LJ Hooker Commercial. So that's my first commercial property gig. And so I've been in commercial property uh, since. Um, so, you know, just a little bit over 20 years officially in, in commercial, but obviously over 22 years in, in real estate overall. Mm. Stayed at LJ Hooker for about three or four years and then um, made a bit of a name for myself. But LJ Hooker at commercial at this at that point in time was still a, probably a T2 sort of agency. It wasn't really the T1 agency like CBRE mm. and so forth. So I started getting noticed and um, so the Colliers actually reached out to me and uh, recruited me over to join them. So I, so I stayed with Colliers for about four years uh, and then I got recruited by CBRE. Um, stayed at CBRE for about a year uh, and then joined Jones Lang LaSalle, um, heading up their metropolitan um, uh, de uh, department. Um, so stayed there for about three and a half years uh, and then got recruited to Cushman and Wakefield. The list goes on. Uh, and, and, uh, and stayed there at Cushies for about five months only because I didn't know at the stage at that point in time. But um, when I joined Cushman and Wakefield, they just got bought out by DTZ. So merger and acquisition. Um, so a lot of people left, um, so I left as well, uh, and then I rejoined LJ Hooker Commercial 
in 2016. Um, and then by that stage, LJ Hooker Commercial was definitely um, one of the top tier agencies in Australia. So I stayed with them for about four years. Um, and then um, I got a bit sick of the corporate, I suppose, you know, life and you know, mm. working for someone else. So I decided to uh, start Property Lions uh, back in 2020. Mm. So it's, about, it's been uh, three years now and um, it's been a really good journey. Uh, mm. I love what I'm doing. And as part of um, the transition into property lines, I decided uh, to go down the property buyers agency side of things because I spent all my career on the seller side. Mm. Um, whereas I felt that um, I can offer a lot more than the typical selling agents and I can actually offer a lot more as a property strategist in particular, the commercial side of things. Mm. And so that's been really, really good. Um, so, you know, we're doing uh, multi-million dollar acquisitions um, for commercial property uh, investors, high net worth investors. Mm. Um, and we're, you know, focusing on um, the Eastern Seaboard, to Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a quick sort of summary of my background and how I got started. We'll get into a little bit about commercial property strategies and, and kind of deals and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, that you've done, but tell us, you know, having that extensive, you know, 22 years in the industry, that's, that's a long time. Tell us like kind of a bit about what you've learned being in commercial, having, I mean, you've got a, uh, a real insight into how to scale with commercial and how to turn a million into two million and two million into four million. Like, tell us a little bit more about, about what you've seen and what you've yeah, yeah, I'd love to share. Well, I, I guess, you know, people always think that commercial and residential is so different. Well, the, the, the matter is it's not. I mean, fundamentally it's the same thing. Mm. They're both investment vehicles. You're, you're buying land, you're, you've got a building, and you're leasing it out to a tenant. The only difference is with residential, you're re leasing it out to a resident, whereas with commercial, you're leasing it out to a business. And, and obviously with commercial, it's a little bit more complicated because you've got different sectors as well. So you've mm. got your you know, industrial properties, your commercial property, retail properties and pubs and hotels. And, you know, there's a few other ones as well. But the fundamentals are still the same. So if you understand the fundamentals of investing, the fundamentals of economics, the fundamentals of market research and market dynamics, um, you can still do really well in commercial. Um, I guess the biggest difference is the risk. And... Uh, you know, with residential, there's nothing wrong with residential. Um, you know, I own residential properties and I've got a lot of residential clients as well. The residential is much safer, much more predictable. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, everybody understands residential because everybody lives in a house or an apartment, lives somewhere. Um, and because it is safer, it's more predictable, um, you'll find that the returns are probably not as good as commercial. So commercial inherently have probably two to three times higher profits or, or returns than residential, but it also has the same uh, risk factor mm. Just a quick well. pause there, do you mean mm. from a capital growth or from a cash flow perspective? A bit of both. So the way I look at um, investment is I don't distinguish between capital growth and rental returns. I look at it collectively. Mm. Um, so, you know, I always look at it, let's say a 10-year horizon. Like what's gonna, what are you going to get in 10 years if I invested in residential house versus I invested in commercial property. Mm. Over that 10-year horizon, you could expect that commercial property is going to do two to three times more than residential, all, all things considered. Mm. Um, so yeah. it's considered a pooled gross return. Yeah, so, yeah, basically, so if I, if I, if I, if I spent the same amount of money yep. buying a resi, buying a commercial, and I sold it in 10 years, I will be sitting on two to three times more profit than I would um, in residential. Done correctly. Done correctly, of, mm. of course. And, and, and I think that's the, what I was alluding to was the risk factor as well. Mm. You know, so, 
So commercial property, the, the biggest thing about commercial property is, is risk factor and it's not for everybody. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I'm having this discussion all the time. <clears throat> buyer's agents are very common in the US. It's one-to-one -one for, for selling agents mm. and buyer's agents are fairly, it's quite a new concept in Australia. People kind of think, well, why do I need someone to help me buy property? Mm. So walk us through what uh, you do as a commercial buyer's agent. Walk us through the process that you take your clients through mm. and how that actually benefits them. If people actually spend the time and really understand what a buyer's agent does, whether it's residential or commercial, um, they'll see a lot of value in it. So um, like you said, Alan, uh, you know, buyer's agency is a very new concept in Australia, even though it's been around for, for a while, but you know, it's still relatively new um, to most investors. Um, I guess you, know, you look at the three main things that um, each investor um, needs or, or has a lack of, is um, usually time, the personal time. I mean, I mean, if, if you wanted to actually do investing properly, you have to put in the time. There's mm. not something that you can just, you know, watch a couple of YouTube yeah. videos or listen to a couple of podcasts. It's a great starting down. point, but it's not the end yeah. point. No, that's right. That's yeah. right. You really need to put in the hours. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't. You know, you've got families, you've got businesses, you've got work. So a lot of people don't have the time. Mm. Number two is a lot of people don't have the access to mm. opportunities. Um, so uh, a lot of people get overwhelmed. So you, you log on to domain.com or realestate.com and you get hit with hundreds of thousands of listings. Like how do you know what's going to suit you, right? Unless you spend the hours working it out. And, and the other thing also is with commercial properties, which uh, is more common than residential, is that there's a lot more off-market opportunities mm. commercial. Mm. So broadly speaking, um, probably 60%, 60 um, of commercial properties are done off market, mm. which is really surprising to a lot of residential um, investors, whereas, you know, residential is probably about 80% on market. Mm -hmm. um, so a buyer's agent with a good network, with good history of, you know, doing deals would have access to off market opportunities, which the, you know, the, the, the normal sort of investor wouldn't have. And then the final thing is, um, it's the research analysis and the negotiation, which is a key part of it. Mm. Um, and, and, and again, you know, you need time to invest in research. You need time to invest in analysis. And, um, and also you need specific skills, particularly in commercial property, um, to negotiate a good deal. Because um, with commercial properties, it's not just the price. It's the terms. You know, it's the settlement. It's the deposit. It's the early access. You know, it's the subject to funding. Is it options. Like, there's, there's, it's a lot more dynamic. Mm. So these three things are probably the core three things that each commercial property investor either needs or lacks, which mm. is time, access to good opportunities, and um, having the ability, the resources to do the proper research analysis uh, and negotiations. Mm. Just touching on that, um, talking about time, uh, something that I've learned recently, people think that knowledge is um, that you just read something, you have the knowledge. That's, that's not how it works. Let's say uh, you wanted to learn, I don't know, uh, jiu-jitsu or something right you can watch plenty of videos you can read all the books um, but doesn't mean you can just jump in and 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 take on an expert you've actually got to go through the process hundreds and hundreds of times spend thousands of hours before you become an expert before you can get in on the mat or in the ring or whatever and actually have some success with it so some people like to do that some people like to kind of learn and, and you know look if it takes you two or three years to learn it Fine, if you want to do that, if you want to make the mistakes and you're okay with, you know, taking on that risk 100% by yourself, go ahead and do it. But I think that's why it's important that 
um, th- whether it's residential or commercial, I think that's where buyers, agents and, and strategists um, provide that value is they've, you know, they've t- spent thousands of hours doing it and, you know, learning property, learning the ins and outs of property and that's the benefit you get. You're, you're mitigating your risk basically. Yeah. There's a quote I'm probably going to butcher but it's something along the lines of I hear, I'm aware, I see, I learn, I do, I understand. Right. Yeah. So if you've mm. never done it before, how do you understand the process? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't mean just because you've read a few books that oh, I'm an expert now. It's like, okay, you've you, you've got the concept, but but you know, you it's like the whole thing, the jujitsu thing. You, you you're not going to be able to take on uh, a master like you, you just can't. <laughs> it's not. It doesn't work that way. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the good things about um, investing is that you can actually outsource it. So unlike mm. martial arts where you have to get in a ring and fight someone, mm. well, whereas with investing, you actually outsource a lot of that to someone else. Yeah. Like You, you can know. get Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah, 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 you can get Mike Tyson in there for you. That's right. Let's move on to now when someone might be ready because uh, we all speak to a lot of investors, people, mm. and sometimes you know people have got a million ideas. Or, or maybe a simpler one, Will. Would you recommend commercial for somebody's first investment? That's a really good question. Um, and it's not a straightforward answer, and mm. let me explain. Depending on their position, right? Depending on their position, that's right. So um, a- as I mentioned, uh, commercial properties have a bigger risk profile than residential. So if someone, um, let's say, worked their butt off, you know, for the first, you know, 10, 15 years of their career, they've saved a bit of money and they've bought their home and now they're ready to invest. And the next investment that they're going to do is going to basically clear all their savings then I will probably say, yeah, maybe commercial is not the f- best next investment. Maybe you should stick with residential because there's very limited downside risk. Mm-hmm. You know, if residential becomes vacant, worst case scenario, you get a tenant in three or four weeks. You know, in this sort of market, you probably get a tenant in a few days. Mm-hmm. Whereas with commercial properties, if the property becomes vacant for whatever reason, it could be vacant for three, six, nine months, right? So yep. if, if you had all your savings in that commercial property, you can get undone really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. But another scenario, let's say somebody inherited a bunch of money, okay, um, for, for whatever reason, and they're buying a commercial property but they're not spending all their savings. They still have a buffer. They still got financial capacity to write the, the risk, write the vacancy in the commercial property. If that was that individual with that circumstance, and I would say, yeah, probably commercial might be suitable for you, but it really comes down to the yeah. individual's um, you know, mm. capacity. Maybe an entrepreneur, right, who's been banking huge profits for years, just does not have the time to invest, but they've got, like you say, $2 million buck cash surplus. We're not so worried, right, mm. because they've clearly got a soft place to land if something goes wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Not most people mm. we speak to, but it's cool when we do, right? Yeah. But, re- but really it's, it, it comes down to the individual situation, right, and, and what it really comes down to. I, I, always, I always kind of think of it as two things, your appetite for risk, number one, mm-hmm. And number two is, can you take that risk? And what I mean by that is, have you got the capital and the backing and the cash and the cash flow to actually get into commercial? Mm. So, for example, you know, sometimes we uh, might be speaking to clients um, and they think they're ready for commercial and we might look at their situation and say, hey, look, you, you don't really have that much equity to play with. You don't really have that much cash flow or income or um, excess funds. Um maybe we should kind of like build out your residential portfolio first, build up that equity and then we can look at commercial. Would that be fair to say that, you know, you've really got to be in a a very stable position before you can 
uh, unless you're really willing to take that, those huge risks? Yeah, I think generally speaking, yes. Mm. Um, it comes down to the individual's risk appetite. You know, mm. if someone's you know happy to take risks because they're going for something big, um, and they're not afraid of maybe you know losing a deposit. Then yeah, look, that's no problems. Um, but but generally speaking, I think you know most investors that we speak with are probably not in that boat. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I will probably say um, you definitely want a strong financial base or foundation before you jump into commercial. Mm. The other thing worth considering also is just your your knowledge and your mindset as well. So mm. I, I often compare commercial residential like driving a, um, a a sports car versus driving a Formula One car, right? So you're still driving a car, but one's going to get you somewhere a lot faster, but it's a lot more complicated and riskier to drive. Mm. You can crash and burn in a Formula One car. It'll mm. almost kill. And almost get killed. That's right, or get mm. killed. Um, so, so, so likewise, you know, with, with commercial, I always find that if you've already done a few residential property deals, you've bought, you know, a few, uh, you've, already, you've done a few transactions, you're not completely new, right? So you understand yeah. how contracts work generally, you understand how buy and selling works, you understand how financing works. So that's going to lay some foundation for you to take the next step, mm. not just financially, but mentally, and you also need to be you know, prepared mm. um, before you make that jump. Yeah, because you've got to be pretty dis- decisive, right? I mean, like you said earlier, a lot of these uh, deals, are, especially in commercial, um, and, and that's where a buyer's agent really comes in handy because um, you've got access to that off-market stock. And, you know, around, I think you said it was 60% was off-market. Mm. Um, you've got to be decisive at that point. And being decisive means you've got the, some knowledge behind you already. You've got some experience um, you don't want to be a first-time investor and going, oh, okay, let's let's go and acquire this one million dollar, two million dollar, you know, uh, commercial property, right? You you have to be decisive in the process. But it strikes me as well when you say that when our risk curve is naturally greater and we're only considering considering maybe a third to a half of what's available if we do this on our own, doesn't sound like such a good idea. You know, to me, not so much. You'd want that professional help to make sure at least considered all the options on the table. Yeah, hundred percent. 100%. You know, it's like, it's like you know, if, if you're getting sued, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, you want to hire the best lawyer and, mm. you know, best consultant and to help you. And, and what I find really intriguing is that um, using, the, using the, the getting sued example is when, you, when someone gets sued, you, you'll see a lawyer on both sides. You know, the plaintiff mm. and the defendant mm. both would have a lawyer. Mm. But why is it that in, in residential transactions, um, you only see one agent representing yeah. the seller? You know, you're, you're dealing with um, multi, multiple millions of dollars transaction, yeah. right? And yeah. for, for most people, it's their life savings. Like, why yeah. wouldn't you have someone representing you? Mm. Why would you only have one agent on the other side of the mm. fence who's representing the seller and you yeah. don't have a professional representing you on this side of the fence when you're the buyer? Yeah, that's true. I mean, people are so used to uh, selling agents, real estate agents. It's, it's a norm. It's like, oh, yeah, I've got to sell my home uh, or sell a property. Selling agents in Egypt is a professional, and then when it comes to the buying side, it's um it, it's kind of like people scratch their head and go, well, why why would I need someone to help me buy property? I can do that myself. Um, but when you put it that way, um, <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre because you know um, you're, you're paying buyer's agent I don't know like one or two percent of the transaction fee, mm. right? Same as what you would pay a selling agent. Yeah, right. And and the job of the selling agent is to justify their fee and try to get at least one or two percent higher than in terms of price and what the vendor w- could get on yeah. their own. And vice versa, the buyer's agent's um, job, um, on top of everything that I've just mentioned, is to um, 
have a financial gain for the buyer. So if the, if the buyer's agent is not saving the buyer equivalent to what their fee is, uh, then, you know, then, then obviously not, you don't have the right buyer's agent. But, you know, if you have the right buyer's agent, they should be doing that for you. Mm. So even though it is a cost, but you should get that back. Yeah. It's an investment. It's an investment. It's an investment. investment yeah. yes. Whether it's resi or commercial, um, you're, what you're paying for is the expertise because mm. half the battle is actually uh, you know, pinpointing where you're going to buy and what you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, gains. Like w- what's the upside? You know, we, we talked about, yes, there's risk, but uh, what's, what's the potential gains with, with commercial versus resi? What's, what's the upside compared to – because Resi's – look, we mainly deal with Resi. Mm. Uh, we like to help people – Talk about it to a blue in the face. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we like to help people build that foundation. But once they're ready and they want to delve into commercial, what are the potential upsides actually compared to residential? Oh, yeah, nice little name drop there too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the name. It's all in the name. <laughs> That's it. Well, uh, like, like I said before, I mean, the upside is huge. Like it's, it's you know, two or three times uh, – you know, what you get in residential. So when you look at residential property investors, there's usually a few stages that go for it. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you guys are obviously, you know, doing a lot more residues than I am. Typically, they start off as a uh, buy and hold investor. They'll, mm. they'll find something that they're familiar with, they're comfortable with, within a price range, they'll buy and hold it, and then wait for the market to do its thing. So they might, on average, get 7% annual growth out of that, that property. Mm-hmm. And then the, the next stage, someone who's a little bit more sophisticated, they'll look for some sort of value-add opportunity. Maybe they'll put a granny flat at the back. Maybe they'll, they'll um, knock down and rebuild or do a bit of ref, uh, refurbishment or renovation. And they could expect maybe like a 10%, 15%, maybe, you know, uplift in, in equity doing that. And then finally, um, they graduate and become a proper developer, right? So they either, you know, either they'll do a duplex or a few townhouses or, you know, some people do really, really well. They, they build multiple units, you know, and things like that. But that's generally speaking, that's kind of like the progression. So you kind of go from, you know, 7% per annum to maybe like a 10, 15% and then to a property developer, maybe like 20, 25%, mm. right? That's kind of the progression. Mm. So when you look at commercial properties, you can still have the buy and hold strategies and, you know, all the type of things. But what you'll find is um, with commercial property leases, they always have annual review of the rent. Sometimes it's CPI, sometimes it's fixed 3%, 4%, 5%, depending on what it is. Quite often, there's a market review that's applicable to the lease um, if the tenant exercises their option. And that's where most of the commercial property investors make their money is mm. at the market review. So let's look at the last couple of years. So ever since the pandemic um, we've seen industrial property prices just skyrocket. And, and that's a combination of different factors, um, obviously rise in e-commerce and all that type of stuff, mm. which we won't get into today. Um, but let's say you bought a factory somewhere in Australia. Let's say you paid a million bucks for it. Um, let's say you bought it you know, at the back end of 2019. Um, you could expect probably a 50 to 60% increase in rent today from when you bought it. That would directly correlate to a 50 to 60% increase in the value of the property. Right. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then you look at residential property. Let's say bought something in 2019, residential property. I guess in some markets, it's gone, you know, 50, 
but generally speaking, probably thirty-ish mm. percent, maybe, mm. right? So that so that's you know that's one side of the, one side of things. You know that's that's you know that's probably two x from there onwards. Mm. And then you look at sort of the, now the value-add opportunities in commercial property. Um, and the opportunities are endless. So you can, f- for example, very easily buy uh, a commercial property that's undervalued. And there's a number of reasons why the property is undervalued. And one of the main reasons is because there is a lease in place that's putting pressure on the value of the property. So what I mean by that is industrial property uh, rents has gone up 50%. Let's say there was a tenant that signed a lease in 2018. They were paying 2018 rent. And they've signed up on an incremental increase of, let's say, 4%. Fast forward five years, 2023. Which is not even CPI right now. Which is not even CPI right now. But fast forward to 2023, market rents have gone up 60%, but their rents only gone up by 4% per annum. Mm. So they're probably paying about 40% under market rent as a result of that. Mm. So we're starting to see a lot of that happening. So a lot of our, our clients are starting to find these from, from us. We were trying to help our clients find these type of properties where it's under rented. Mm. There's an existing tenant in place. They're paying 218 rents and their lease is about to expire. Mm. So we want to acquire these properties and then hit the tenant with a market review upon this expiry and then get that 30 40% rental uplift. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's the trick is you can't just, I mean, without the knowledge, you can't just go and find that. First of all, you've got to have access to stock and that's really where, you know, you leverage your relationships within commercial. Mm-hmm. You've got all those relationships with all the selling agents in commercial. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't really do it you know, off the bat, if you've got no knowledge, no experience that, hey, I, I just spotted this deal where the, you know, what, what do you, we call it, the, the whale, is it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it's uh, it's a shorter whale and, hey, maybe we can get a quick uplift and then all of a sudden within 12 to 18 months, uh, property value has gone up by 30, 40%. They're very, it's not something that's easy to spot. You Like you really need a professional to help you do that. But let's yeah. just break it down a bit because especially I'm, less familiar with commercial than you are mm. particularly. Um, so to make sure I've missed nothing as well. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like any valuer, right? So let's say they're from CBRE, JLL, professional valuer. They come out, do their appraisal for the property. Mm-hmm. They'll base the property's value on the rent being received, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So hence why even though we know this property might be able to go on market for more, our valuation is limited by the, by the rent incoming. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So it's... Um, it's very interesting because some commercial properties are worth more vacant mm. because of that reason. Yeah, so you know, if you if you had a lease and the tenant's paying below market rent, that lease is actually making your property worth uh, worth less. Mm. So it's very uh, it's very often we see commercial properties actually worth more vacant. That's why a lot of um, commercial property investors they they were trying to find ways to kick their kick the tenant out. Yeah, um, some do it ethically and some do it you know other ways <laughs> but yeah to answer your point that's exactly right because i think it's worth just well, especially because for our audience may not know this i certainly you know didn't know it as well before the conversation so i've learned a lot today too um so we may well have a vendor who knows the property is worth more on the open market but they know for anyone coming in they simply cannot get the finance for more right and every valuation is going to show below what they could get if they were to sell it reasonably so knowing that someone can't finance this could be a a two, three million dollar property, who's going to come up to you with bags of money, right? And if they can, they're the one buyer in the market who could do it. So then they can call their terms too. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, I get asked this really often. It's like, oh, so why? So if there's so much upside in this property, why doesn't the owner just do it themselves? Well, 
you know, the thing is, like, a lot of people have very different reasons of selling. Mm. You know, they, they could be going for a divorce or it could be a death in the family or it could be they're retiring or, you know, maybe they're just trying to, you know, rebalance their portfolio. There are so many reasons why people are selling. Who cares? You know, as long as the buyer is in the right place at the right time, who's got the capacity to take advantage of it, then great. Well, yeah, let's imagine it, right? If you were ready to retire, you know, pull up stumps, go overseas, and someone says, yeah, look, you can get another 500K, just wait five years, stuff that, give me the money now, right? Exactly, exactly right, yeah, yeah, spot on. Tell us about a no money down <laughs> strategy. How does that work? And make yeah. it really simple, even for us, because... And, and I think this is where a lot of people get really attracted towards commercial as well, especially if they've read... Uh, books on the subject um, from American authors or, you know, good old rich dad, poor dad, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of a no money down deal just sounds amazing. Yeah. It, so sounds, it's, it's, it sounds the juiciest on the list. So we thought we'd just, just give us the basics, give us the basic rundown. Because yeah. obviously for us in residential, it doesn't really exist. Yeah. So to, to get to learn about the unicorn deal is pretty exciting for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Happy to do that. I mean, you can do it in residential, but it's much harder. Mm. Yeah, it's much harder doing residential. It Whereas a commercial... Um, I wouldn't say it's very easy, but there's more opportunities to do that. So, so in, in my ebook, um, Alan, which obviously you, you've you've looked at, you've read, um, there's half a dozen strategies, and one of them is no money down strategy. And basically, what it is is literally no money down to own a property. How it works is 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 like this, and 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 this is not a strategy for someone who has a very low risk appetite because it's pretty high risk. Mm. I mean, just the name suggests it, but. Um, you've got a specific example where you helped a client do a no money down. Take us through that example. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. of course, I've got several examples, but yeah. the one in the ebook goes like this. So um, there, there's a, a freehold uh, office building um, in the Metro Sydney uh, market. And um, the owner, the, the, pre- the, the previous owner of the building um, has owned it for probably 20 years or so. And he's developed a really close relationship with existing tenants. And he's a nice guy. He doesn't want to upset the tenant. So he's never really increased the rent much. Mm. So it comes to the point where he has to sell the property. And, and because he's never really increased the rent, the, the tenants in that building are paying probably 50%, five zero wow. below market rent. Holy okay. shit. Yeah. Um, and the guy didn't really care because he's owned the property for so long. It's, all, it's, it's already paid off. It's giving mm. him good cash flow. He just didn't want the stress of you know, upsetting the tenant and replacing tenants. Like, he's just one of those landlords, where, you know, those, those, those um, you know, best landlords that you can think of. Like, he's just one of those guys. Hmm. So anyway, so he had to sell the building and the building's worth $9 million and uh, based on the rental income, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so we found this deal, introduced the buyer, and basically what we negotiated was that we'll pay you $9 million for it. However... We want a six-month delayed settlement, and as part and during that six months, we want early access to speak with the existing tenants, with the objective of renegotiating new leases with the existing tenant. So there's half a dozen tenants in that building. Went back and forth a little bit in, in the negotiations, but eventually that's what we agreed to: nine million dollars, six months delayed settlement, five percent deposit on exchange, and early access to sign up new leases. So as soon as the contract got exchanged, we started contacting the existing tenants because we've got permission to do so. So five out of the six were able to renegotiate the rents to market rent. So we took it from $250 per square meter, which was what they were paying, mm. up to four, on average $480 per square meter. Yeah, wow. So 
the last tenant, the sixth tenant, couldn't afford it, so they decided to, to move out, and that's fine because we eventually replaced them anyway. So the negotiations part took about six weeks. Um, so we, so we, done, we did negotiations with five out of six tenants. We signed up new leases with all five of these tenants, and then all these five um, leases were at the market rent of $480 per square metre, the, the blended rate of $480 per square metre. We took, that, we took the new leases to the bank and we ordered a valuation based on the new leases. So based on the new leases, the valuation came in at 16.1. I was going to say about 16, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, at 16.1 million. So we applied for a, a bank loan at, I think it was 60% LVR, mm -hmm. which was enough to pay the vendor the $9 million they want and the stamp duty and the purchasing costs. And so the, 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 the buyer settled on a property with no money down using that tactic. And, um, and it's giving him positive cash flow. Now the and risk, obviously, if we don't renegotiate and we then get a 60% loan, is now due for is roughly 4 mil, right? Or 3.6. Well, that's right. That's yep. right. So, you know, um, there are obviously risks involved. You know, the yep. risk are what if the tenants say, no, we can't negotiate a new lease or we can't sign the leases uh, in time for settlement. Yep. And, you know, there's a bunch of other risks involved. Um, but thankfully, um, you know, we had um, a pretty good run with the tenants. They're all pretty reasonable. Um, and I think it's also the goodwill that was built mm. by the previous owner as well. So we, so that was uh, advantageous for us. But you're right. I mean, there are risks involved. And, you know, if you if you don't have the risk appetite to take that risk, yeah. um, then it's probably not the deal, not a deal for you. Yes. Mm. But when we're that far below market value and if you've got – if you're – yeah, well enough established as a person that you can say, okay, I, I can eat that. Um, suddenly now there's a huge profit that's that's there in a short space of time. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Ima imagine this, like you bought something for 9 million and you, and you turn into 16.1 million in a matter of six weeks. Mm. Yeah, that's insane. It's purely, purely a bank fail as well. That's not assuming it doesn't doesn't put yeah. it on market. And and just to clarify, yeah. like like that's not all commercial deals. We're talking that's the top end of risk there on on commercial deals, like one of the top end. That is definitely one of the top ends yeah. in terms of risk. You know, they're, yeah. they're, you know, in the range of commercial property deals, you've also got a range of you know one, two, three in terms of risk. Yep, that's definitely at the top end. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Before we go, uh, well, if somebody's, um, you know kind of thinking about commercial maybe maybe give us like three i don't know a few do's and don'ts of commercial before we go don't go for strata mm -hmm. commercial properties because it's very difficult to value add on strata mm. it's like buying an apartment versus mm. buying a house mm. yeah same same sort of logic mm. uh number two is um don't fall in love with the deal mm. okay be prepared to walk away from the deal because mm -hmm. the person who's prepared to walk away from the deal has more power in the negotiations. Another don't is don't put all your life savings into one commercial property deal mm. uh, for the reasons already stated. The do's uh, must do your due diligence thoroughly. Um, there's a lot of uh, hidden, um, I suppose, uh, issues with commercial properties that if you're not thorough, you won't dig up. Um, just touching on that, I actually had that. I wanted to ask you that um, the importance of feasibility studies. Maybe if you can just quickly cover that, um, the importance of doing a feasibility study, especially on commercial. We still do the same for resi, mm. but tell us about it for commercial. 
Yeah, because commercial is so so much riskier, you want to do your due diligence and your feasibility properly. Mm. One of the advantages of commercial properties is very predictable in terms of the outcome, okay, because you're not are so reliant all the time on the market conditions. So with residential, you know, if, the, if you're buying in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're going to wait a long time before you get the capital gains. Whereas commercial, um, it's a lot more predictable. So the feasibility is a lot more predictable as well. Um, so if you're, buying in, if you're buying into any type of investment with, your, with blindfolds on, you're going to make mistakes and you're probably going to lose money. Mm. And because the risk with commercial property is such uh, it's not so much greater than, than residential, your potential loss is going to be much greater. So the feasibility is you have to be really thorough. Um, you got to make sure you've done the right market research, if you've done the right comparables. Don't be afraid to look at 100 deals before you put in uh, your first offer. So what, what we do at Property Lions, we literally analyze over 100 properties a week on behalf of our clients. And then we only end up picking maybe two or three that we think has some legs. Mm. So if, you, if this is your first time doing commercial, don't be afraid to look at 100, 200, 300 properties mm. before actually make a decision on what to buy. Make sure you have a good lawyer that understands commercial leasing. And most importantly, make sure you have a good commercial property broker. There are so many finance brokers out there that are really good at resi, but doesn't understand commercial. Mm. Yeah, look, uh, make sure you're speaking to commercial property guys, commercial property mm. finance guys, commercial property lawyers, commercial property managers. Um, it's just, you know, it's a specialized thing. It's mm. a different language. It's a different language. That's right. Cool. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Will, for coming on to, to Property Suit. We definitely need to get you back on the show again. Uh, we just didn't have time to cover everything today. But, man, I've, yeah, we could just keep going for hours and, pick. yeah, like you said, keep picking your brain and, yeah, yeah we, we've had fun, man. I've learned a lot. I'm sure that the audience has learned a lot too. So, yeah, yeah really looking forward to getting you back in the future. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Love to come back in. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Awesome. See you guys.